0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginian Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, March twelfth, two 2022. Now it is Wednesday morning, and we are here once again with our friend Truthvids, to discuss Part 73, or to present Part 73, of his 100 Proofs That the Israelites Were White. This is now part three of our discussion of the Hebrew language and its relationship to the languages of Europe, which for us is mostly limited to English along with some Latin and Greek. We hope to have already demonstrated that many common everyday words which are found in each of these languages are similar or even identical to Hebrew words In both sound and meaning. Of course, words which only sound similar but have unrelated meanings can and should be dismissed as being coincidental. But when a great variety of words are practically identical in both sound and meaning, the implications cannot be overlooked especially since there are also a great number of broader cultural similarities and historical links between these same nations. Once these links are acknowledged, we find that language connections between the ancient Israelites and the nations of Europe go far beyond the fact that those nations use a Hebrew Phoenician alphabet and these, and that these languages must be directly related and were even derived or descended from Hebrew, albeit with other ancient influences, such as Persian and, and other related languages, Assyrian. Here we shall continue that discussion. Hello, TruthFits. Thank you once again for being here.
1: Hey, Bill. Yeah, it's good good to be back Other or two-week break, but uh, here we can finish the the similarities between the languages. And uh, I I had some interesting things I'm going to bring up in a sec, and that was the um, Ten Commandment stone found in New Mexico, and also um a guy a few centuries ago linked Welsh to Hebrew as well. But I believe first you had a few things to say, and you, and you wanted to talk about how um, the 100 proof list got muddled up a, li- a little bit, right, Bill?
0: Wow, yeah.
1: I, I don't know.
0: I kind of know how I did this, but I don't know how I did this. I, I had a list of proofs, a draft list of proofs that I was copying over, into my the paper that I was going to write for this presentation each week which of course has been ongoing for part 73 now right so it's been a while well well I don't really pay too much attention to the proof numbers I haven't sometimes I mentioned the proof numbers in podcasts and sometimes I didn't but back in the 60s which is probably about three months ago, right? I, I actually must have been ignoring the proof numbers altogether when I'm copying the proofs that we had lined up, the subject matter, which is found in the title, right? I, I copying them over into notes, I forgot to change some of the numbers. I added proofs in between and that were related or, or that I felt were in a good sequence to add at particular points. And especially when we were in the 60s, I did that several times and we had discussed that in in advance that I was going to add these proofs and I forgot to change the proof numbers in my draft notes where I was keeping the list of the proofs. So we had like two proof 60s and a couple of proof 61s. I actually reused numbers five times so i had to go back and change that at that rate we'll never get to a 100 if we keep repeating proof 60 and proof 61 and proof 64 or whatever we'll never get to a 100 so i went back and and amended and corrected all of the proof numbers Right now, I would think that what we were doing was, and in my original numbering, was proof ninety-two similarities of words in European languages with Hebrews, with Hebrew. But it's actually proof ninety-seven. So we've almost reached a hundred, and we will probably, because we had an an, an expanded list, we'll probably go to one hundred five or one hundred six. Before the series is completed. So I, I think that might assist you when you create your videos, which is the real purpose of this series of presentations is that it ultimately result in your video series on 100 proofs, right? So it'll give you a lot of extra information and, and if you choose to do so, you could. There, there's a couple of proofs that you could combine into one, such as the exposition on the woman in the wilderness and the relationship to the whore of Babylon, that are really related, which we separated into two different proofs. Which is fine. It it works either way. So you'll have that option when you get down the road in into those those proofs, and your video. So your video series. So I think that'll help, but to have 105 or 106 proofs is also, I I think pretty fair because if somebody doubts one proof or three or five, that then, okay. So we still have a hundred, (laughs) right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I did. Funny enough, that exact proof I just combined, but I remember looking at your, um, you know, you sent me the, all that all the proofs we'd done so far and I was just staring at it and I couldn't work it out. I was like, hang on a sec, we got 60, 61 and then it goes back to 60, 61 and I'm trying i'm trying i'm staring at it thinking i must be stupid i think and then i finally realized wait maybe you accidentally didn't update the numbers as you went along right so right. i just kept going back and repeating it but but yeah as you said that's fine because it just gives me more material to condense it all down in into the hundred proof videos right which is a lot easier to share because it's people can just watch the whole thing in a few hours done and and absorb an enormous amount of information and then hopefully have that hunger to go and research it for themselves, visit Christogenia, look into it more, you know, listen to podcasts, read the articles, and then they get um, that firmer ground to actually understand it for themselves, right? Uh, As Christ said, you have to actually um, look into it yourself. If not, uh, some Jew will just challenge them and and they'll give up immediately right as soon as they face hardship or a challenge they'll just abandon CI at the first opportunity uh, right Bill?
0: Well right absolutely you actually when you find cushion identity and that light goes off in your head and you realize that there's something to it that it's at least very possibly true and it resonates with your spirit you can't just leave it there and go off into the general public, your circle of, of friends or whatever, claiming that it's true because you don't have a good grasp on the information which supports it. When you find Christian identity, you have to study it and learn it and learn all the facts that support it and all the biblical scriptures that support it so that you can own it for yourself. Because the more you study it, the more firm, the more you study the Bible in the context of history, the more firmly established you become in that truth. Because it is true. So, it, it really needs to be studied. And... Of course, different people have different learning speeds and different capacities for study and different opportunities for study. A a man that drives a truck or works in a warehouse or builds houses for 8-10 hours a day just isn't going to have long periods of time where you could sit and read. Well, it's best that you just keep this on on the back burner until you can spend the year or two years or three years that it's going to take for you to learn it properly so that you can defend it. That's the difference between the, in in the parable of the sower, between the seed which is planted, which lands in deep ground and can develop roots and become a strong plant versus the seed that landed in the shallow hard rocky ground that the roots are very shallow and the plant is easily uprooted or just withers away so yeah that that that's the point that Christ was trying to make in that parable and constantly told his disciples as well as his adversaries to search the scriptures to study After our last presentation, a friend located for me the PDF copies of the books which I could not find for myself, but I have not yet had a chance to make good use of them. I haven't... We were traveling last week. It's going to take me maybe months to be able to sit and look through these books. I'm speaking of the books by the Jew Saul Levin, who had published two volumes. First, Semitic and Indo-European, the principal etymologies, where he is also saying that this list of words, that they all have cognates and and identical correspondence, or or close enough to identical correspondence in Indo-European languages, these Hebrew words, right? Basically, that's the gist of that. And Semitic and Indo-European, Volume 2, Comparative Morphology, Syntax, and Phonetics. So, I have copies of those books, PDF copies of those books now. And as soon as I get an opportunity, I want to study his etymologies and comparisons and estimate their merit and usefulness in relation to our own assertions, because this... Hebrew English list that I have here of, of many hundreds of cognate words. That's just from my own rather casual study, which was conducted 25 years ago. So it's, it's nothing that I've really taken, taken much more time to pursue since then. But in, in, in these language studies, even if the information comes from a Jew, If it stands up to inspection, then we may find use of it. In our modern academic environment, it is difficult to study any Hebrew without the hand of one devil or another being in the mix. Of course, the work of John Pearman Brown, who was not a Jew, was influenced and is in part derived from that work of Saul Levin. In the first few parts of our presentation on the subject, we spoke of Brown and Levin and another Jew named Joseph Yehuda, an academic and a lawyer who wrote a book asserting that Hebrew is Greek. That claim seems... Outlandish on the surface. It really does. But there are actually many cognate words and other similarities between Hebrew and Greek. But before we depart from this subject, we should mention that certain European scholars were also making very similar assertions long before any of these more recent scholars whom we have mentioned meaning Levin and John Perman Brown, and even Joseph Yehuda. So, at Christagenia, we have long had electronic copies of some of their books available. Discoveries in Hebrew, Gaelic, Gothic, Anglo-Saxon, and Basque was published by Alison Emery Drake in 1907. The author was billed as a sometime university fellow in Anglo-Saxon in Columbia University, which at that time may have still been a reputable organization, right? a reputable institution. In the 30s, it went Marxist. Long before that, The Eastern Origin of the Celtic Nations was published by James Cowles Pritchard at Oxford in 1836. Both of these works are comparative studies, mostly philological in nature, which show definite relationships between early European languages and Hebrew. Pritchard says in a very short advertisement at the beginning of his book which is more or less a summary introduction he says in part it is termed a supplement to researchers into the physical history of mankind that's what he's subtitling his book because it was undertaken with the view of furnishing Proofs of a series of facts of which little more could be introduced into that work than general statements containing the results of inquiries which had been sufficient for my own conviction. It forms, however, a distinct treatise in exclusion of its reference to the history of nations or races of men, and it may be proper to remark that some of the Philological researches, which it contains, have been pursued into greater extent than the primary object of the work may seem to have required. And and what he's basically saying is that while he's admitting that his book falls short on supplying a full history in some respects, that the language research, the philological researches, which it contains, would make up for that. So the book The Eastern Origin of the Celtic Nations is actually focused on the similarities in, in the language more than the history, in at least some respects. So these scholars that this um discoveries in Hebrew, Gaelic, Gothic, Anglo Saxon, and Basque also discusses. The vocabularies of each of those languages, it has indexes of Gaelic, Gothic, Anglo-Saxon, English, Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit, and Basque words, and then it has an index of words from various other Aryan languages, and he supplies all these indexes in order to show cognates between the Hebrew language and all of these other languages. So that's the entire gist of that book. And that was a little later. It was 1907. But I think that you have something that's even earlier that you wanted to discuss, something I wasn't even aware of.
1: Yeah, I, I found this a few years ago that um there were people um comparing ancient Welsh to, to Hebrew. And the further back you go, you know, the more ancient Welsh, because obviously it's been modernized gradually over the centuries but the longer you go back the closer it is to hebrew and uh, i guess we should speak j- just briefly how, how that would be possible right that when the galatahi the Scythians, came into europe that some must have went immediately um, to, to britain right uh, whatever timeline if they reached rome was it about 300 bc then obviously some must have crossed over the North Sea and went to Britain and mingled with the, the Britons then. And, and that's why, um, the Welsh still call themselves the Kimri as the Saxons and Angles came what would have been what 800 years later. So you can understand how they would have seen each other as different people. Uh, as they come, they were pushed more and more west until eventually into the Welsh. And for some reason, uh, that they called themselves the Kimri and that was the culture that survived out of all, all the Brightons, right? Would, would you agree with that interpretation, Bill? Well,
0: well, to an extent, but I think it goes back even further than that. The, I believe the Kimri and, and the, the Galatahi, people that are known generally as Celts, the Galatahi were actually the Germanic tribes and they have a difference in language from the later Germanic tribes that had crossed into Europe. And I'm talking about the, the, um, Saxons, Vandals, Goths, Huns, and, and other tribes, related tribes. But the, the, and the Alans would fall into that category as well. Well, well, the earlier tribes that came into Europe, that were called Cimmerians, generally, generally speaking, those tribes would have spoken, they came from the Cumry, from, from the Bit Cumry, which is the House of Omri, which are the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity, and they crossed into Europe first, around the Black Sea and, and migrating down the Danube River Valley. They had sacked Rome, Around 390 BC. So, so they had invaded Etruria, which is the land of the Etruscans, before 400 BC. So those tribes came in to Europe at a very early time. Their language would theoretically be a lot closer to the Hebrew language than the language of the later tribes who dwelt in in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and had a lot more exposure to the Persians and and the Assyrians and other tribes, other nations. I don't want to really say other races, because not all of them ever came into contact with the yellow people in Eastern Asia. A lot of them never did. But they had a lot more contact and and dwelt among these other adanic nations for much longer than the cimmerians And even though they were the same people, when they migrated into Europe, when they migrated west, they were known not by the name cimmerians but by Saka or Scythians or... or other similar names, and and Galatahi was a name that the Greeks gave them, but that's because when the Cimmerians had come into Europe, and the Greeks inquired as to who they were, they picked up on the Assyrian, uh, the Assyrian language was the lingua franca of the east at that time, so they used a variation of the Assyrian name, Cymru, which in Greek turned out to be Kimmeroi, and we know them as Kimerians in our own language. So we could see, we should be able to see the clear connection between Kimeri, Kimmeroi, and Kimerian. As the Greeks inquired as to who these people were coming from the east, they must have got their answer from the Assyrians, because at that time, they did have, Assyrian was the lingua franca of the east, and the Greeks did have commercial, and diplomatic ties with the Assyrians. So, when the tribes of the Saka later began to migrate into Central Europe and the Danube River Valley, and the Greeks also called them Scythians, but when they inquired as to who they were, Aramaic was the lingua franca. The Persian Empire was the dominant government in the East, and the Greeks also had diplomatic ties with the Persians and mercantile commercial ties with the Persians. They did trade. That They had to have diplomatic ties because they were on each other's borders. Well, they would have used, naturally would have used the Persian name. For these people. So they called them Saka, because that's what the Persians called them. And Scythians. And I believe they probably got the term Scythian from the people themselves. That's my belief. I can't prove that. And the Greeks began after a couple of centuries to call them Galatahi. That word I haven't seen earlier than the I would say the 5th century B.C., but I think it might have been the 4th. I re- I've written on the subject, but it's been a long time. But I have my sources in my German origins papers at Christigenia. So, these Cimmerians who came into Europe at an early time, yes, they did cross into Britain at just as early a time, and, and they were known as the, the Kimri or Kimbri. Kimry, C Y M R Y. It's spelled in English, and Kimbri, and and there are Kimbri in Europe who are identified by Roman writers. By Roman writers, they were both Kimbri and people that they continued to call Chimerians. And with the Chimerians or the first settlers from the east, the first people who migrated into Germany, that formed modern Germany. The, the Romans were calling them Cimmerians until the end of the second century BC. They were identified as Cimmerians, when the Romans were still at war with many of them. So, before the Cimmeri came to Britain, there were the Phoenicians in Britain. And the Phoenicians, as we've established in our studies of Scripture... The Phoenicians certainly were Israelites. They were not Canaanites. That's a lie. It's a Jewish, it's mainly a Jewish lie. And all of Christendom follows this Jewish lie into thinking that the Phoenicians were just Canaanites. That's not true. The Phoenicians of Tyre were exclusively Israelites, according to scripture itself. The coasts of what's called Phoenicia started out after the Hebrew conquest of the Canaanites, it started out as the coast of the tribe of Asher, and the Phoenicians were generally from Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, Dan, and other northern tribes. So, the Cassiterides, or Cassiterides, sometimes they're called the Cassiterides. They're tin islands. It's a word in Greek that's generally translated into English as tin islands. The Phoenicians and the ancient writers speak about this. They describe it. The Phoenicians were taking tin from the Cassiterides and trading it in the Mediterranean, throughout the Mediterranean. So they had this tin trade. And the Cassiterides, according to the later geographers, are certainly... What we know as Wales. And that was settled by Phoenicians and they were mining tin there. Probably a thousand years before the coming of the Kimri or Kimarians into Britain. So they formed the, those tribes together and we don't know to what extent or another the Phoenicians of Wales survived the Kimri, right? And, and the Kimri invasions, but they certainly seem to have survived in large numbers, and those tribes formed what we would call Britons. They were the Britons of Roman times before the Anglo Saxon invasions of the fifth century AD. So we have a clear historical connection and archaeological connections between Wales and The Phoenicians of Tyre. I don't know if you have anything to respond to that. Then they've been a little circumlocutious, but that (laughs) that background history
1: is necessary. If if the Cimmerians who came to Anatolia and then went on, they came really early, right? That was immediately after the fall of Assyria. And I believe even before some were, you know, running off, but that would have been like 600 BC, right? And uh, if they went pretty early, Um, not not instantly, but went through straight to Britain, uh, even over a century, they would have kept the language very similar, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, languages evolve all the time, but there wasn't a whole lot of time for their language to evolve very much. Do you know what I mean? I mean, 200 years. Look at how much American English has changed in 200 years right it it's we have a lot of um from from you and and you're british we we have a lot of idioms that you don't have and you have idioms and words that we don't have, but we could still sit here and talk and communicate to one another, even though our ancestors yeah. are separated for for the last probably two hundred or three hundred years in some cases since my own yeah english-speaking ancestors came here
1: yep so so um there was a i believe he's welsh he must be his name was uh charles edwards and he wrote a book in 1675 so a long time ago right and it was hebrew words and expressions still extend in the welsh tongue and uh if if you look at his true name right because charles edwards was just a, a translation to english it was um Haynes, that must be the worst version of Charles, right? I don't know how you get Charles from that. And then it's, um, that the next word is, is two words. It's Y just on its own and then space F Y D D. And, and that shows you that the Y must be some kind of vowel sound and it makes like F or F which, which is translated to Edwards, right? I, I imagine, but, but that shows you how. You know, the languages, that they're pronounced a lot different probably than, than we realize, right? But um, uh, unfortunately, I don't have his book. But another guy centuries later called LGA Roberts in 1990, 1919, sorry, so 100 years ago, he grabbed the selection of um, all the Hebrewisms and phrases and, and he made it into his own book. Uh Charles Charles Edwards' book was sorry, it was a number of Welsh Cambro Britannic Hebrewisms and where he grabbed whole phrases in Welsh and showed how they closely paralleled by whole phrases in Hebrew. And uh, I've got a little selection here. Unfortunately, the only website I could find it on was that that Jew bastard Yard Davidi, right, who he has like lots of little articles like this. And then annoyingly interjects little comments like, oh, yes, and uh, this is in the records of so-and-so rabbis who, who also agree with this. So he's he's basically trying to pretend to be your friend and pretend to agree with it. But really, he's just the gatekeeper, right, Bill? A, a deceiver.
0: Yes, Yer Davidi is a gatekeeper He's British Israel The British Israel people somehow believe that Jews were actually from the tribe of Judah Which is not at all true And the British Israel people have always republished And, and they quote, they cite Yer Davidi's books But Yer Davidi never really wrote anything original That Christian identity Christians haven't written I haven't seen anything original from Yer Davidi. It, it's all things that were already written by, by white Christian identity Christians. Yer Davidi is just a Jew that, that's, in, in my opinion, being an opportunist so that he could hijack at least some segment of Christian identity or British Israel and divert it to favor the Jews. Which is exactly what he does. He's a beast
1: yeah and he takes donations and as i said he he keeps interjecting comments to try and uh, make it out that a portion of the jews also agree with this as as though (laughs) such a thing exists right but um that there's a whole list i'll just go with four simple examples right and um for example in welsh there's gael head and then in heap, and that means heap of testimony and in hebrew it's galead right so so that one's fairly close and then uh, there's another one in this one's identical in Welsh, the which means a troop cometh. So, so Gad by itself means troop, right? It was one of the names of the patriarch. So by adding that B-A, it must, um, you know, it's a compound word to mean a troop cometh. And in Hebrew, it's the same, bagad, right? And then the next one's really interesting. In, in uh, Welsh, it's just one word. Anu Don, which means without God. And in Hebrew, it's ain Adon. If I'm pronouncing that right, A-E-N and then Adon, which is pro- what, probably where we get Odin from, right? And then one last one. This, this one's interesting because it's, it's, I'm probably going to mispronounce it, right? It starts with Y, Y-N-I-N-E and then space. All, A-L-L, space S-Y, and then space d d a So any al-Sadai or something like that. And it means I am the Almighty God. And of course in Hebrew, it's any else sadai So, so it's very similar. And, um, if we had a Welsh speaker who was, you know, well versed, especially in more ancient Welsh, it would be interesting to go through it. But I, I believe. If you really studied this, you could see a lot of similarities in in the way they spelt it, or right, Bill?
0: Well, yes, I'm sure, and and these, it, even though it says discoveries in Hebrew, Gaelic, Gothic, Anglo-Saxon, Basque in the title, in his book he also discusses Welsh, o- along with the Irish, and and some of the discussions are are pretty in depth. And, and much further in depth than than that simple list that you have from that British Israel writer, who's probably just trying to condense what he read in that book from the seventeenth century, right, and and make it digestible for a, a modern, a more modern audience of people who are not linguists and grammarians, and and that leads me. On, <clears throat> I had one critic, send an email and and I, I don't I don't think the guy even understands what we're trying to say here the ancient nations of Europe actually did physically descend from in large part not completely of course from the Israelites of scripture from the Israelite tribes who were dispersed scattered By 585 B.C. when the temple was destroyed and most of Judah that was remaining after the Assyrians were done with them were also taken into Babylonian captivity. So the scattering of Israel started with the explorations of the Phoenicians and the tribe of Dan back in perhaps as early as 1400 B.C. Right away in Judges chapter 5, in events which occurred very close to 1400 BC, you see the, <clears throat> the song of Deborah asking, why did Dan remain in ships and Asher abode in his breeches? And that word breeches is actually a word that means coves and Inlets on the coast because the coves and inlets were used as havens for ships before harbors were actually developed, right? So what we see these people that these people on the coast of Asher and Dan who are Israelites are sea going people 50 years after the time of Joshua. They've already taken to the sea. And they probably had a lot of those skills in Egypt where they lived on the banks of the Nile in Goshen, which was in the Nile Delta. So they must have had some of those skills as early as Egypt. And three or four generations later, they developed them again. Perhaps six generations later, they developed them again. But it wasn't even six generations. It was more like three or four from the Exodus to the time of Deborah and Barak couldn't have been very long at all. So when we say that words are cognate, that means that they have a common origin, right? And and we have this list of words, of simple everyday words <coughs> in English or in Latin or in Greek that have the same sound as these ancient Hebrew words and virtually similar meanings or very often they're identical in meaning. So we would claim that those words are cognates because we understand that there is a clear historical connection between the Hebrews and the English even if it was six or eight steps to get from one place to another and also between the hebrews and the, and the greeks not all the greeks of course but the dorian and daning greeks and also between the hebrews and the romans we had these ancient connections that show that they are related peoples and on top of that we have the testimony of paul of tarsus and the gospel to show us that they are indeed related peoples. People that were related, but that separated perhaps 1,500 years before the coming of Christ. If we want to consider the Hebrews that had left Egypt without going with Moses, that had left Egypt by sea, and we have historical testimony of that. In in the ancient Greek writings, where the and Greeks had come directly from Egypt to Akahia. So they didn't follow Moses in, in the cloud and in the sea. They didn't follow Moses in the Exodus. They departed directly from Egypt, yet they were Israelites. So we have these people that were separated for 1,500 years until the time of Christ... And they still have similar words in their language. Words that are similar in sound and meaning to Hebrew. So those cognates, those similar words in both languages, help to prove or corroborate the historical account. If they didn't have similar words in their languages, if there were no similarities whatsoever, then we could question the historical account, or at least wonder about it. They do have similar words, they have many similar words, hundreds and hundreds of them, so the historical account must be fairly accurate. If we had no books or histories today, And we see all this enmity in the 20th century between the English and the Germans. Perhaps in about four or 500 years, the English could get away with denying any genetic connections to the Germans. And whatever language similarities are left could be dismissed by Anglophiles as coincidences. So it is with Hebrews and Europeans, as the Jews have scoffed at or ignored all of these assertions concerning language similarities, which we see have been made since the 6th, 17th century in that one book that you describe. So these assertions have been made by scholars. These people aren't just jokers or or guys like me that sat in prison for 12 years and read a dictionary. No, these people are scholars who were professionals in their field, and they made these assertions. The author of discoveries in Hebrew, Gaelic, Gothic, Anglo-Saxon, Basque, he he was a fellow in Anglo-Saxon in Columbia University. So he wasn't a full-time professor, But he would have had the academic status of a professor being a fellow in in Anglo-Saxon. He he would have the status of being a professor of that language at that university. Or at least a similar status. Because being a fellow at a university is more or less an influential post. He must have been a a recognized scholar, to achieve that. And he's making these assertions. But the Jews hate these assertions. And and we've seen right from Acts chapter 21, I think it is, that they wanted to kill Paul of Tarsus simply for bringing the gospel to the nations of the lost tribes of Israel. And they've had the same attitude ever since. They hate Christian identity. Unless they're Yer year David-y and they want to corrupt it. Or Eli James. Or some other Jew. Okay. I don't know if you have anything to say before we begin.
1: Yeah, I thought we'd just bring up that um, Lost Luna Stone, right? Because C- it's quite interesting. Um, I, I, I'm really bad with the geography of the U.S., but I believe they have found... Um, even like mummies in in or you know burial mounds is it in Ohio. And again, I don't know. Is there like a river that you can kind of come down in, into Ohio from the Atlantic? Maybe I'm completely off there, <laughs> but but it is possible how they would have settled there, right? Or unless they just went inland, right? Is, is that true, Bill? Do you know, you're talking about the Los Lunas inscription. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say uh, because then I was gonna say in New Mexico right it's kind New of Mexico. right at the south right so um it doesn't necessarily have to have come from israel it could have been um uh one of the colonies and then from the colonies they would have come kind of to mid us went inland and then they found we found this stone like a, a century and a half ago and it's basically uh 10 commandments right And it's uh, generally, it was just completely ignored. Uh, No one, none of the professors, unis refused to even acknowledge it. And then eventually a few had a look. And and of course, the the Jews always look for any kind of anything they can criticize. And because there was like one or two spelling mistakes, like a the Q letter, the cap, it was replaced with, uh, sorry, the cop, it was replaced with a K on one word. And uh, one word had an aleph in it when in original Hebrew it wasn't, and and then there's also a few Greek letters that were used. But I mean, if if colonists came, it doesn't that they, they wouldn't necessarily be perfect in their spelling, and it wouldn't necessarily have to be identical to the time of Moses, right, 1450 BC, or or even later in the in the kingdom of David. It, if it came much later, like say. 500 700 bc if some israelites managed to get to america that there's endless amount of reasons why why it could have a few spelling alterations but but the main thing i thought while why this was relevant is that there were a few greek letters that they had replaced and and that's interesting because it shows how the cultures were entwined and how greek uh the 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 city states in Greek were rising and becoming more powerful and more influential and that must have affected the Phoenicians and Israelites as well, right Bill?
0: Well, absolutely it would. And, and I, I don't, you know, this Hebrew alphabet that we have today was developed in the Probably, probably, because I don't even think that scholars know exactly, but it was probably developed in the 3rd century BC. So it may have been started a little earlier, but it definitely wasn't until after the Babylonian deportations of of Judah, of the rest of, of Judah. I should say the balance of Judah, because it was only a small portion of Judah. Most of them had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. So this before that the hebrew alphabet it it was i want to say it wasn't set in stone right but it was often inscribed in stone it so it often was set in stone there are um ab they're called abdecories i believe and abdecory is an abc when you write the abc's when you write out the alphabet right that there have been inscriptions of the alphabet discovered in many places that they were like a child's exercise, just like we do in elementary school today in first or second grade, have children write out the alphabet. Well, there have been abdeccaries found in stone and in ceramic pottery fragments in, in many places in Palestine, or at least in several And the alphabet seems to have had minor variations from place to place. The intercourse with the Greeks and the introduction of Greek letters into a Hebrew alphabet isn't fantastic to me at all. And even though I haven't studied it from that particular aspect, how do we know that those letters even were originally Greek? How do we know that certain Hebrews didn't first use those forms? We don't really know that, right? I mean, there is no Greek writing. There are many Greek inscriptions that have been discovered. But the Greeks were not really a unified people or a unified culture. And we don't have writing examples from each of the tribes that actually... Became the totality of Greek culture many centuries after they arrived in various parts of Greece. I mean, you could see if you studied the Greek language, you'll see that sometimes Doric or Ahiolic or, or Ionian words became prevalent, but that what we know as the Greek language, the coin Greek language, is really an amalgamation of several dialects. And and Greek is not an ethnicity. Greek was simply Hellane, Hellane it was called, and it was only called Greeks by Romans. The Greeks didn't use the term Greek, but Hellenes that that what was Hellane or Hellenistic was only a common culture and set of laws for a wide variety of tribes. So it doesn't surprise me at all to see some Greek letters in very early Hebrew because those letters may not have necessarily started with the Greeks I don't know if that makes
1: sense yeah absolutely there are um... but it's interesting um, also just last uh, comments the way I think it was on a big hill and then at the start there was like a little road leading to the hill and then the stone was just outside the hill kind of so if you had some kind of a settlement up there, then the first thing you would see would be the Ten Commandments stone, right? So it's just interesting the way they did it. And and it says, um, you know, I am Yahweh, your God, who has taken you out of the land. And then it goes into the Ten Commandments, right?
0: And that has been deemed to be authentic. And I don't think, I, I don't know when it was discovered the, the lowest limit stone, but it couldn't have been until the 19th century.
1: And and that's, that's what it says here that um a guy found it and then he asked locally and they said, oh yeah, we've known about that for a few decades ago. You know, my dad or grandpa knew about that, but this was the guy who actually brought it to light, but he was completely ignored when he tried to, you know, publicize it. Nineteen thirty three is when he first saw the text, apparently. Nineteen thirty
0: three. And probably didn't have an educational background to to invent it or, or to have carved it himself. It it certainly seems to be an authentic stone. And I'd read about it, but it was a long time ago. But my impression was that it is certainly authentic. And and I believe it has been deemed authentic. By, by at least some scholars and academics, they always and, try and to say things like that. Are I really
1: don't know the geography of U.S. Why you would end up in New Mexico if, if you was landing in the U.S., uh, you, you know, why there? Because originally we came. There, there was a Spanish colonist who came on the west coast, wasn't there? It wasn't all, all the east coast. It depends from what way. Uh, You come, right? Because you can also, if you came from the Mediterranean, it might actually be easier to come in, in the Midland and come up, you know, underneath America, right?
0: I'm looking at, th- this is near Albuquerque, this section of, there seems to, there is a river here. I don't know which one. Google Maps is terrible. It's the Rio Grande. It empties into the... um, I think it empties into the Gulf of Mexico. or, Or the Gulf of California. One or the other. I can't follow it on Google Maps. Google Maps does terrible with rivers. The Rio Grande has to empty into the Gulf of Mexico. I think it forms the border for most of the eastern border between Mexico and the United States. That's my guess. Yes. So you could reach New Mexico from the Rio Grande River if 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 the river is flowing well. That's not a far stretch at all. And you could reach Ohio. You, You were asking about Ohio. You could reach Ohio. The United States, North America, has this amazing river system right? You could get pretty far on a river before the invention of dams, right? You'd reach Ohio by sea up the St. Lawrence River. So that's from northeastern Canada. You could reach Ohio through the St. Lawrence River and and the Great Lakes, but you have Niagara Falls to contend with, right? And you can't sail a boat up Niagara Falls and, and That That's Niagara Falls dumps from Lake Erie into Lake Ontario. But except for Niagara Falls, you could probably reach Ohio by water. So you just got to climb the falls, climb around the falls and build new boats at at the top (laughs) to go the rest of the way, I guess. I I don't know how you would do that, right? But you're not carrying your ships around the falls. That ain't happening, right? So they have um, a system of locks that go around the falls today, but I don't know if if there's any original features that allowed ancient sailors to go around Niagara Falls. I I simply don't think so. But you could also reach Ohio from the Mississippi River, right? You could sail up the Mississippi River from New Orleans, from the Gulf of Mexico. And reach Ohio, and I don't think there are any waterfalls. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think there are. The Mississippi, and the Ohio River. The, um, I'm sorry that the Ohio River forms the border between Ohio and West Virginia and Ohio and Kentucky, so it 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 flows under the southern border of Ohio, and goes west, it forms the northern border of Kentucky and eventually ends up in the in the Mississippi River, which goes all the way to the Gulf. Okay, I'm sorry.
1: Well, I was just going to say that where they found, uh, you know, white people buried there and mounds and, and all that kind of stuff from thousands of years ago, that really goes against the Jewish narrative and that the um, in Red Indians claim that it was always their land, and that we're evil white invaders, right? But clearly that there were white people there, um, many thousand years ago. But unfortunately they didn't survive. They probably intermixed with the, um, natives there, right? The, the Indians and that led to their demise. Absolutely. And, and the,
0: the, um, okay. There were Jews among the conquistadors, but I don't know. And, and there are definitely Jews in a lot of those Mexican Indians that they have, and I believe most of them have, one form or one extent or another of Jewish blood in their veins. The Jews had mixed rather heavily that they were fleeing the Inquisition in Spain. They got onto the ships of, of the conquistadors sailing to the new world and they established a a large presence in Latin America and when the Inquisition came to the Americas the Jews had to flee again and a lot of them assimilated with the Indian tribes and this is history that's very sketchy and it's often repeated, it's often refuted or denied by Jews but it's certainly true and I discussed it at length in a series of podcasts I did titled The Arab Question, probably about three years ago, four years ago. But we're way off base here. I'm sorry. We, If the Los Lunas inscription is legitimate, if it's authentic, which I believe it is, I don't think that Spanish Jews created it. Because I don't think that Spanish Jews of the Spanish colonial period really could have had a good understanding of Paleo-Hebrew. If if they do, I don't know what sources they could have used or how they could have used it, because all, none of their literature is in Paleo-Hebrew. And it's only much more recently that scholars have, archaeologists in the Middle East have gotten a good understanding of Paleo-Hebrew. So, so I don't know if there's any other sources for understanding Paleo-Hebrew and, and why mix Greek letters into it. It, it's, it seems to me that the Los Lunas inscription is authentic. Of course, there's always going to be that question of whether it was done by some Spanish or Portuguese Jew. I somehow doubt that though. I, I would have to study it even more, but I, I don't want to be conclusive declaring its authenticity, but I lean towards it being authentic. I certainly do. Okay, this is hopefully the last portion of our presentation of similarities of words in European languages with Hebrew. I wanted to talk briefly about the word swallow which I had given in our last presentation as a cognate of Nefal Nefal meaning to fall, and swallow also meaning to fall, or to make something to fall. And I was talking about that addition of the initial letter S, where... Without the S, sephalo would just be "follow," which is much closer to nephal, right? But when I was writing my <coughs> Revelation commentary recently in Revelation chapter 2, I encountered the Greek word Smyrna. And I want to bring up now that this name, Smyrna, the city, the city, it's one of the seven churches in the Revelation, comes from this greek word smyrna which is ointment and it's a particular ointment it's myrrh which was used for anointing and smyrna is the ointment with which the woman in the gospel anoints the head and rubs the feet of christ in preparation for his burial as he attested i don't remember which chapter it is but it's in the in the closing chapters of several of the Gospels just before the events leading to the crucifixion. So, there's an older Ahiolic Greek form of the word Smyrna is Myra, which corresponds more precisely to the Hebrew form of the word for Myrrh. And it is evident that the initial letter S for Myra to become Smyrna or Smyrna the S must have been added later and the Greeks had also done that with certain other words so Smyrna is a clear example of that 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 initial S could be added to a word as the language evolved so it's not a great stretch to imagine that Sophalo is akin, cognate with our English word fall or the ancient Hebrew word Nafal. That's all I have to say about that. I don't know if you have anything that you want to interject before I continue with our list of Hebrew, European, or Hebrew-English cognates. But hopefully we'll finish that list today. We're going to start, and, and we divided our list... By entries in Strong's concordance, the list has five sections. We've already presented three of them. And the first section is from the first 2,000 words in the concordance. And the second section from the second 2,000 words. So now we're at the fourth section. And the fourth 2,000 words, which starts at 6,000, right? So this is Strong's number 6006. And the word is... Amas, which is to load, and Strong's has, i.e., to impose a burden. It could also be a load, or bearing something, or tribute, which is a load or a burden, right? So, that in itself has a, a very similar counterpart at Strong's number 4853. Massa. M-A-S-S-A, massa, which is a burden or a lifting. And these are definitely, in my opinion, cognate with the Latin word massa, which is a lump. A lump of something is a load of something. Or the English words mass and amass. To amass something is to pile up a load of something. And and this Hebrew word amass is to load. So, if they're not cognate, there are no cognates in any languages. But it's that I believe that they are some of the most striking cognates. Strong's number six zero five one. Anan. Anon is a cloud as covering the sky. And I believe that this word is cognate with the Greek word "anna," which means up, or the English word "awning," which is a covering over your head to to protect you from the sun. It's a covering as covering the sky, just like a cloud. So, awning and anan, I believe, are certainly cognates, and so is the Greek word "anna," a possible cognate.
1: You don't think "um" morning. Uh, was related to that at all? It's, it's just a similarity with morning awning, right? I guess.
0: Yeah, that's a loose rhyme, but I don't believe that there's a, a definite... It, it ch- permutes the word a little too much for me to list it. Yeah. Songs number 6059. And I'll also supply the definition for 6060, 6060. 60, because they're spelled identically. Anac is to choke or to collar. In other words, to adorn with a necklace. And as a noun it is simply a necklace. That's sixty sixty. So a knack well where do you choke people? You choke them in the neck. And I believe that's actually the origin of the English word neck is this a knack which is to choke or a necklace that's from where we get the English word neck which was hneka it began with an h in old English h-n-e-c-c-a or in middle English it was n-e-k-k-e according to the American Heritage College Dictionary Strong's number 6186, ARAK, A-R-A-K, is how it is transliterated by Strong's. ARAK is to set in a row, i.e. to arrange or to put in order. IE means id est in Latin. It means that is. So sometimes I say in other words, right? To arrange or to put in order. That's a verb. A rack. I believe is the (coughs) source of the English words rack and reckon. To reckon something is to figure it out, to arrange it, to put in order. To reckon how you're going to do something is to arrange the steps to do it. To rack something is to arrange it, to put it in order. A rack. To set in a row arrange, or put in order. These are really basic words. And you can't tell me that the medieval English got all their language from Jews. These cognates must go back into ancient times. They must. Strong's number 6187. Erect is a noun. It's a pile or equipment and it's spoken of things that are set in order. So it also means order. erect, E-R-E-K. And I should really probably have listed these words in one group. Erek and Erek. But from this erect, I, I believe it has cognates in the Latin word Erectus. Which means erect or upright. And the English words Rec and Erect. And the Old Norse word, wreck, which means a wreckage. So, an erect is a pile, but it's also equipment or things that are set in order. So, it makes perfect sense that our word erect, or the Latin word erectus, comes from that term. But in the sense of being a pile, well, that's what a wreck is. So, we have this English word wreck, which is just a pile of something. Or what happens after there was some accident, and something becomes a wreck. Strong's number 6199. Arar. A-R apostrophe A-R. Arar. Naked or poor or destitute. And the Latin word arere is to be dry or thirsty. To be thirsty you're destitute of water. And the old French term arere, spelled the same way, it's probably pronounced differently, but I'm not gonna try to pronounce any French correctly, <laughs> means behind. So we had the English word arid, which is to be dry or destitute of water, and we also have the English term arrears which, through Middle English, actually came through that French word, or through the Latin word, arere, or behind. So, arrears, if you're in arrears, that means you're poor, or you're destitute of something. If you're arid, that means you're dry, or you're destitute of water. And, And it could be used in other contexts, idiomatically. So, I believe that these words are cognates.
1: If you uh, owed money to the uh, Lord that they would call you, say that you're in arrears, right? That you're behind in your payment.
0: Yes. Because you're poor. That's the only reason why you're going to owe money. So you're naked or destitute. Not necessarily without clothing. Naked in the sense of being without something. Without property, without a means of support. 6284 and 6285. 6284 is spelled PA, I'm going to pronounce it, P-A apostrophe A-H, -ah, PA-A, PA-A, however that apostrophe was pronounced because it's treated like a stop in modern Hebrew. And I don't believe, or modern Yiddish, I should say, I don't believe that today's Jews pronounce Hebrew properly or necessarily as it was pronounced in ancient times. Pa'ah could become a, a, a D, a W or some other consonant that you have to distinguish between the, the P-A and the A-H, right? 6285 is a similar circumstance. P-A apostrophe A-R. R. Pa'ar. And Strongs gives the definition of pa'ar as to puff, i.e. blow away. And of pa'ar to gleam, to embellish, or figuratively to boast. And from these words, I believe we get the, the English terms power and prow. A prow is a a fancy embellishment on the front of a ship. Power and Prow. That's my opinion. I definitely see a cognate between power and paah, which is to puff or blow away, as well as Pa'ar, which is to embellish or boast. <laughs> Songs number 6292. Pigul is fetid or unclean, and that has to be the origin of the English word pig. Now, it's possible that was a a loan word from medieval England. I don't know how far the word pig goes back in in our language. But pig something fetid or unclean, I certainly believe is the source of the English word pig
1: and um that was like the main unclean animal right i mean i mean there were many listed but pig was always listed as the main one that uh you know in the bible that we knew was the unclean animal right that all cattle eat grass and absorb all the nutrients but pig they just eat shit right
0: right and even today in in the south that there's the two most frequently eaten, I would say most southerners eat one or the other daily. Pork and catfish. And catfish is basically the pig of, of the waterways. The pig of the lakes and rivers. Strong's number 6358. There's a group of three Strong's numbers, words, Hebrew words here. 6358 is Patur, it's spelled Pator, P-A-T-U-W-R. 6362 is Patar, P-A-T-A-R. And 6359 is Patir, P-A-T-I-Y-R. And, and the W in Pator, that's the presence of the Vav character between the T and the R. And the Y in Patir is the presence of the yod character. So, sometimes I think that scribes screwed up and made the stroke of a yod too long and it looked like a Vav. So, 6358 and 6359 are probably the same word and one of them is just the misspelled version, right? Whether it should have a yod or a Vav. If you make the stroke on a vab too short, it could look like a yod, right? It's easy to do those things when you're writing lengthy manuscripts repetitively. It's easy to screw up like that. So, <clears throat> petor means opened, i.e., a bud, and patar means to cleave or burst through, i.e., to emit. <clears throat> to emit something is to burst it through the air, I guess, or patir means open i e unoccupied or free, <clears throat> and I believe that this these words this word group <clears throat> gives us the Latin word I'm sorry, my throat is getting froggy. I believe this word group gives us the Latin word porta which is a gate, and the word porticus, and these words signify an, an opening, something that's open, that you could pass through a fence, or a wall, or, or a door, <clears throat> so that's a porta, and patar is to cleave, or burst through, and and... Patir is open, unoccupied, free. Well, a door is an open portion of a wall. So the Latin word porta is a gate or a door. And that's definitely cognate with these words. So is the French word porta or door or a portière, which is a curtain covering an opening. Or the Spanish word patio. And from these words, we also get the English terms port a port is an opening where a ship could berth and, and a safe harbor, safe from the waves of the ocean and the movements of the ocean. Port, portal, portico, and patio through the Spanish all come from these words. They all have exactly similar meanings to these words. A patio being an open place in a yard. 6378, pack, P-A-K, is a flask from which a liquid may flow. And I think that that's the cognate of the English words pack or package, which had evolved into other meanings. But originally a pack was a flask which kept liquid. 6438, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. 6434, pen is to turn, or an angle. 6437, pana, P-A-N-A-H, is to turn, and by implication, to face. 6440, pana is the face. And it can mean other things idiomatically, like against or anger or countenance or edge, when you have to face someone or look them in the face. So it was translated idiomatically in that ways in that way in various contexts in the King James Bible. That that's the um, in the Strong's Concordance definition. In each Strong's Concordance definition, there's a colon with a dash. And then there's a list of words, or sometimes only one word or a couple. Sometimes the list is quite long. And sometimes it contains phrases as well as just words. So everything before the colon and the dash is the actual definition. Everything after the colon and dash is only how the King James translators translated the word In various contexts throughout the translation. So sometimes they screwed up and sometimes those idiomatic interpretations are not very good, but usually they're at least fair or reasonable. You can't always translate a word literally when you're making a translation. Because words are used idiomatically or as allegories or euphemisms in other ways. So, pen, to turn, an angle. Panna is the face, basically, or or pane is the face. And pana is also to turn, or by implication, to face. I believe these are the sources of the English term pan in the sense of turning. To pan the camera. And also pain panel pain P A N E as a facing, <coughs> panel, which is a facing, and even from PANA in in the sense of that word being allegorically used to mean against or anger or countenance, the word pain P A I N which actually contorts your face, right, to be in pain. Those English words all came from this group of Hebrew words.
1: I'm sorry. Like a cooking pan it's also something that you can keep turning around, right, that you can cook in. Yes, Um, and it has a face. It's just on the name pan, right?
0: right i I mean i certainly thought of the cooking pan in this context but i didn't think i had to include it because it's very clear that pan pane, and panel all come from this group of words so the english cooking pan i would add to that it's a face or a surface that's cooked on so and and it's also turned constantly right if you're cooking properly you should be turning it to distribute the heat evenly over the flame right okay 6438 is also related to these other words pinna p i n n a h a pinna is an angle So, we see that's related to the word pen, 6434, which is to turn, but could also be an angle. When you turn, you're changing your angle, right? So, pinna, 6438, is an angle, and then, by implication, a pinnacle. And I believe that's the source of the Latin term pinnaculum and the English word pinnacle. Came, came from this Hebrew word pinna, And a pinnacle is a pinnacle, right? A pinnaculum is a pinnacle. Or a sharp angle at the top of something, usually. 6452. Pakak, or Pasak, I'm sorry, Pasak it would be pronounced. Because that C in Strong's is... The C in Strong's transliterations represent the Hebrew letter Samek, which was evidently pronounced like an S. And the C-H represent the Hebrew letter Heth, which is sometimes transliterated as an H in English. And that's evident in the name Heth. And in the name Ham, which should be Keth and Cam. So, uh, P-A-C-A-C-H is Pasak, properly. And it means to hop, and figuratively to skip over. 6585, pasa, is to spare, or to stride, and 6587, pesa, is a stride or a step. From these, I believe we get the Greek word pateo, which means to walk. And pateo, to walk, is probably the original source of the Spanish word patio. But I believe they all came from this group of Hebrew words. Patio meaning to walk, pateo. Passus in Latin. Here we have this word pesa or passa in Hebrew, which means a stride or a step. Both of them mean that. And and we have passus in Latin is a step or a pace. It's the same exact sound with the same exact meaning. Just a Latin ending. US stuck on the end of the word instead of the Hebrew vowel. Old French passer has a similar meaning and the Spanish passer and passar and the English terms pass, pace passage, and even because it can mean to skip over something, passac means to skip over something, we have the English words pause and pose. A pose is a stop, and a pause is a stop in the sense of skipping something. You're skipping a space of time before you resume what you were doing when you pause. I don't know if you have any feedback
1: I was just thinking how, how you just add an O onto that and it becomes oppose uh, and, that, and that's against right?
0: I'd have to think about whether the English word pose was the root of the word oppose to be yep. against something. I, I'd have to think about that one. 6490 piqued it's transliterated by Strong and it doesn't necessarily contain two Q's. I I really didn't look. But very often for some reason when there's only one Hebrew consonant. Strong doubles it in his transliterations. Now in many of these items that I have in these lists, I've omitted that double consonant when there's only one occurrence of the consonant in Hebrew. But I'm not going to look this one up. It's not really that important to the points that we're trying to make here. But he transliterates 6490, PQD, as P-I-Q-Q-U-W-D, or P-I-Q-Q-U-D. So in that difference, we see that sometimes a vav was used in the spelling of the word. And sometimes not. So that's no big difference, right? Picud means appointment or a mandate. And I believe that's the source of the English word pick in the sense of choosing something. <coughs> An appointment is a choice, right? When you appoint someone or when you mandate something, that's a choice. You're choosing, especially in the sense of appointment. 6504, parad, P-A-R-A-D, means to break through or to spread or to separate. Parad also means to separate. It means to break through or separate. And parats, 6555, parats means to break out. And I believe that's the source of the Latin words parse and partialis. And also the English words part, parse and partial. To make a part of something is to break it away from the main part. To parse something is to break it up in pieces. To separate it. When we Coin Greek was written in all capital letters with no spaces between the words. So before you translate it, you have to parse it, meaning that you have to separate all the words from one another so that you can understand it in English when you translate it, right? You, 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 in order to translate it, you have to determine where each word starts and ends. That's called parsing it. So, that's the sense that we use the English word parse. So, to part it is to separate it. And that's the exact meaning of parats, which can mean to separate. And parad, which can mean to separate or to break something out. That's the English words part, parse, partial. And the Latin pars and partialis, which have identical meanings. This isn't a coincidence, right? All these words, pass passa is a pace, or or the Latin passus, which is to take a step or a pace. This is not a coincidence that all these simple, basic, elementary words have the same exact sounds and meanings. Is not a coincidence. English and Latin and Greek both have all have their roots in Hebrew as well as the other european languages all had their
1: and, roots um, in hebrew uh, i'm sorry i just checked this is the root word for um pharez, which is uh, the, the name of um you know one of the sons of judah which means to break through right as well yes
0: yes i know to that breach yes i'm i'm aware of that i'm sorry it's also the root of the fares gives us the modern Spanish name Perez because many Jews had retained that name in Spain and anybody with the surname Perez has Jewish ancestors that's one there's many Spanish names that are actually Jewish names but that's one of them that connection is a lot clearer between many of the Spanish and and the Jews who were crypto-Jews or, or who converted to Catholicism in medieval Spain, right? And claim to be Spanish now. They're not. They're Jews. That's an unfortunate circumstance in in the way that the name Fares has come to be in modern times. Because it doesn't really belong to Jews at all. And, and we see that that meaning is actually found in Latin and in ancient English words. (coughs) The same word. So it's our word. It's not their word. It's not the Jewish word. It's ours. Okay. 6508. Pardes. This is the word that's translated as paradise, right? Hebrew word. Pardes is a park or a forest. And Parc, I believe, is the source of the French words Parc, P-A-R-C, and Parquet, and also the English words park and, of course, Paradise. But Paradise, one may say it was a loan word, but it was actually a loan word, or or it was actually, I should say, in Greek, long before it was English. It's the word paradises, which... They supposedly got from the Persians, who had a similar word to the Hebrew, because Persian and Hebrew are both Semitic languages, right? And it may have come to, to the Persians through Aramaic or through Hebrew. Pardes, a park or a forest, is the source of the English word park, as well as paradise. 6500. Para, P-A-R-A apostrophe, that's that guttural stop, or however it was pronounced, that ion letter. And 6509, Para, P-A-R-A-H, there it doesn't end in, in the, it ends with a heth instead of with that apostrophe that I think represents the ion, it usually does. So, Both of these words mean to bear fruit. Para, para. And I believe that's the source of the Latin word, parere, which means to bear, to bring forth, to give birth to. As well as the Latin word pyrum, which is a pear, the fruit that we call a pear, and pyrus, which is a pear tree. And also the source of the Latin word which is an ancestor, and pharax, which is fruitful, even though pharax begins with an F instead of a P. These are also the sources of the English terms pair and parent. Even if they came through Latin, they originated with these Hebrew words that are identical to the Latin and had the same meaning, to bear fruit. If you're a parent, you have borne fruit in your children. If you're a pear, you have borne fruit in in the little bulbous, pulpous piece of the tree that you eat that comes from its seed or flower, right? Uh, I mean, that's bearing fruit. Parare is to bear and, or, or to bring forth or to give birth to. And para in Hebrew is to bear fruit. You're not going to tell me that these aren't the same word. One of them has a Latin ending, and the Romans descended from the Hebrews. So much of their language, Hebrew is found in much of their language, just like the English, and Hebrew is found in much of our language.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, you'd be the fruit of your parents, right? If As long as they stuck to the tree of life, right? <laughs> if not, you wouldn't be a fruit.
0: Right. If, if not, you're a Bastard slip. Exactly. 6501. Pere. P-E-R-E and an apostrophe. And Strong's... This word is a little obscure. But Strong's... And I didn't list the meaning of 6500. But he says, From 6500... In the secondary sense of running wild. So we see this para word basically means to run wild in Hebrew. strongs number 6501. And in Ahiolic Greek, which is one of those dialects that came from a people that ultimately helped contribute to the modern Greek language, right, and Greek culture. They were one of the component precursors to Koine Greek, Hellenistic Greek language and culture. In Ahiolic Greek, there's a word phar, which is spelled P-H-A-R. It's actually phi, eta, rho for people that understand the Greek alphabet. Far or fair, phar, is the form of the word in Ahiolic Greek that became far or fair in Hellenistic Greek and Classical Greek. So the ph became a th somehow in Koine Greek or, or in Classical Greek, and originally it was a ph. And we know that from inscriptions in Ahiolic Greek. So the Ahiolic Greeks were Danins, actually, if I remember correctly, and I'm pretty sure that I do. So they had this, we had this Hebrew word para, which is running wild, and this Ahiolic Greek word fair, and it's virtually identical, except that the last syllable was dropped, the E in the apostrophe was dropped, and only the first three letters were taken, or the first letters, the initial letters were taken. Fair, and it means a wild beast. But fair became fair in classical and Hellenistic Greek. So this fair sound that means a wild beast in Achaeolic Greek, in Latin, fera, f-e-r-a, is a wild animal. Ferox means fierce. And in English, we had the words feral and ferocious. And I believe all of those are cognates with the Ahilic Greek fair, which is a cognate with the Hebrew para. And the P in certain Hebrew words, when it's transliterated, is sometimes transliterated into a PH, just like the shin character is an S, but sometimes also an SH. 6518, paras, from an unused root, meaning to separate. So it's very similar to parats and parad, right, that we saw earlier. And this is the word which actually gives us pharez, right? Even though pharez is related to sixty five fifty five, I believe, parats, right? They're they're basically all the same. I may have put them in the same group, but this paras, sixty-five eighteen, has it's from an unused root meaning to separate. And that must also be the same or, or a cognate word in Hebrew with parad and parats. So, paras, even though it's from an unused root meaning to separate, id est, decide, it also means to decide, and it was used to describe, and it also is defined as a chieftain. A chieftain, or a captain, or a leader. So, when a group chooses a leader, or or when a man becomes a leader for one reason or another... He's separated from the group and and that's how this means a chieftain. The word to the idea of separation also means to decide as strong defined this word, because when you separate things, you're making a distinction between them. You're distinguishing. So you're actually making a decision, right? And from this paras, which can mean a chieftain, paras, we, I believe, get that Greek word presbyteris, which is an elder. And the Latin word presidere, the verb, which means to command. And from them, we get the English words preside, president, presbyter, and even praise, which is a decision, and, and a distinction and a separation when you pray something. And the word pray, which I believe is a decision or, or a separation. When you're praying, you're recognizing and choosing a God to pray to. You're making a decision or you're asking that God to make a decision for you. So I believe that pray may be related to this word as a cognate. But preside, president, presbyter, and praise, as well as the Latin and Greek forerunners of those terms, are certainly related to this word.
1: What, what do you think, um, that the name Ferez signified? Because generally the names have some kind of meaning, right? And Zara means the seed. And, um, do you think Pherez meant that the leader, the chieftain, that Judas, Seed would, the seed that will rule be the chieftain. Do you think it was something like that? You know, well, generally really there's kind of something it with the both. names that are, um, that prophesies what's going to happen, right? And all these Hebrew
0: names in ancient times were basically prophecies about the destiny of the individual. And I believe that's true with Fares, that he was named that way initially because there's a breach. Let this breach be upon thee. Therefore, his name was called Fares, and that breach, that's from 5556, right, that we discussed it is related to 6504 and 6505, which parats means to separate or break out. And we have this name, which means a breach, which is a separation or a breaking of something, right? A breach in a wall is a breaking through of a wall. So Fares was called that because he wasn't supposed to be born first. Right? It it looked like his brother was going to be born first. So his brother got that scarlet thread. Right? But Fares came out first and that caused a breach. Right? And And that's the way they saw it. But it's also i believe prophetic of his line in israel ultimately becoming the leading line right the line of kings descended from phares and so did christ
1: and and, and also than, if you look exactly. for history um the first Zara ended up uh, like ruling over the majority, right? In in Europe, or the kings of Zara, and then Rome, which dominated the whole world, and then it just disappears completely, right? They're just gone, and then Pharaohs rules, right? Completely replaced. Um Pharaohs breached that, and it's all gone, and then it was the uh kings, the Davidic kings, right, from David, from from Pharaohs ultimately, who ruled until now, right? Well, now we're in it's different, we have the Jews ruling over us but you know what I mean well
0: well, that's true and I do believe that the kings of medieval Europe were from the line of David but I think that there was also a lot of intermarriage there with previous rulers that they weren't totally supplanted so I, I'm sure that Zara is still represented somewhere in in our European families not necessarily as kings, but it doesn't matter now because the key of David is fallen. And that's also a prophecy. And And I believe that's the time that we are in right now, that the key of David is fallen. That, that we're in that time of Jacob's trouble where it's not so evident that the Davidic kings are ruling. Because they're really not. I think that's what the prophecy means where it says that the key of David is fallen and Christ says that he has the key of David he's our true ruler Revelation chapter 3 verse 7 Christ has the key of David if it isn't in Christ we have no hope because we certainly aren't going to overcome this wicked world on our own I hope that makes sense but I actually plan on discussing that next week in, in my next segment of my Revelation commentary. Okay. 6527. And this word also is related to all these other words. Parat. And as we saw the similar words that meant to separate or break out. Parat means to scatter words i.e. prate or hum I don't know why he has hum in in parentheses there but parat, in the sense of scattering words I, I believe that's the origin of the English terms prate parrot and prattle even a parrot just scatters words. It it repeats a couple of words or a word repeatedly and repeated. Just scatters it, right? In in that sense. Sixty five thirty one. Perec is a fracture, and can also mean severity. Sixty-five, sixty-one, perak, ending with a Q instead of a T or a D, is to break off or crunch, and sixty-five, sixty-two, perak, is to discontinue. I believe these are the cognate sources of our English terms breach and break, and that's not a stretch at all for that to evolve into a B. It happens all the time. And perec, or fracture, is the English term break. 6565, parar, P-A-R-A-R, is to break up. So all these words in this whole group are basically related in one way or another. And... I believe that's a source of the Latin verb parare, spelled the same exact way, except the Latin ending has an E at the end. Parare, which is the infinitive formative verb, which is to prepare. The old French word parare is, parer, I'm sorry, P-A-R-E-R, is to trim. And I believe that's a source of the English words pair And prepare, to break up. When you prepare food, when you prepare like potatoes or or whatever sort of food, you have to break it up into pieces and cook it. And that's how you prepare it. So it's not a stretch of the imagination to imagine that the word prepare, parare, comes from a term meaning to break something up. And we break up a lot of things in order to prepare them. Sometimes we have to cut them up, but we're still breaking them up. We're just using a knife to do it. The word pear is the same sense as that French word, meaning to trim. And by trimming it, you're breaking it up. Trim a piece of steak by cutting the fat away. You're breaking it up. Parash, 6567. Parash is also related to these other terms, and it's to separate, literally to disperse or figuratively to specify, and and that's because to specify something is to separate it from other things, just like we use the terms distinguish and, and distinction. Something with a distinction is something which is placed above or separate from other other things of its kind, or other objects that aren't of its kind, depending on the nature of the distinction that you're making. So parash means to separate, to disperse, or figuratively to specify. So, in the sense of dispersing something, as a host does, this Latin term parocha, paroca, P-A-R-O-C-H-A, is room and board. And that's because parochus, P-A-R-O-C-H-U-S, is an official host. Those terms evolved into parochial, parish, and other similar words. The late Latin term parochia, the French word parochia, are all related to the English words parish, parochial, and a parish is a separation of land into a geographical area that's distinguished. While it's usually said to be derived, and and this makes sense, but we don't really know which came first, the noun or the verb, it's usually said to be derived from par-echo, which is actually a compound verb. It's a verb prefixed with a preposition. The word paroke is, in Greek, a supplying or a furnishing. It's very similar to the meaning of the Latin term parochia. We also have from parash, which is to separate, disperse, the English terms parse and purse. And I know I've given parse as a cognate earlier, but this word is also related to those earlier terms where I mentioned parse. So all these words throughout this section are related to one another. In the sense of separating and, and dispersing or breaking things apart or breaking things out. And a whole slew of these English words and Latin words are cognate with these Hebrew terms. Here's another one that's actually a, a breaking out of something. And that's 6569. 6569 in Strong's Concordance. Peresh is excrement. As something being eliminated or broken away and and discarded. And perish, even though it's excrement as something eliminated, I believe that's in that sense of something being eliminated is the source of the English word perish. When you die, you've been eliminated. (laughs) You've been separated and eliminated from, from life because you're dead. 6586, pasha, P-A-S-H-A, to break away. It asked, according to Strong's, i.e., trespass, apostasize, or quarrel. And pasha, in the sense of breaking something away, I believe is cognate with the Latin term portio, or portio, portio, or potion. A portio is a potion or a share. And the English word portion from pasha, to break away, became the English term, the, the Latin term portio and the English term portion, I believe are cognate with that word. More strikingly, 6596, pot or papa, depending on whether it's masculine, or plural, that path, P-O-T-H, that TH could very easily be just a T, the fab letter. And the feminine form of it is pathah, P-O-T-H-A-H. And that's to open a hole, i.e. a hinge, or the female pudenda, the sexual portion of the female body. Pata, or pata, is to open. And we have the Latin verb patere, which is to be open. And the word patens, which is open or accessible. And that gave us the Old French word patent, or patenta, P-A-T-E-N-T-E, however an Old French speaker would pronounce that. And I believe these are terms also give us the English words, pot which is a, a, a vessel with an opening, and patent, which is, comes from that Latin word patens, or open, which comes from this Hebrew word patha which is to open, <clears throat> and the English term path, a path being an opening. In, in The creation of a road is basically the creation of an opening. A path is an opening that you could pass through whether it be a field or a forest or whatever
1: it's funny these simple cooking utensils that you just say uh, the hole (laughs) when you say get the pot in Hebrew if they use that it just meant the hole get the hole
0: well I don't know if they use this term to describe a pot in in Hebrew but a pot or a patha is to open or a hole and Basically that's what a pot is in English. I think the word evolved into that English meaning. If you if you can see what I mean. (coughs) Sixty six thirty one TsiEtsa Sietsa and that's T S. E apostrophe E T S A, TSA and the TS there would be that SATI letter that represents, that's said to represent a T S TS, right? And we see that often in other Hebrew words. It's a common letter, but it's not that common. Tsa it's sometimes transliterated as an S and sometimes as a Z. And we see that in the spelling of Sidon, where it becomes an S. Or sometimes it's transliterated as a T, and I think we see that in the name of the city. Tyre is spelled with two Hebrew letters, the Sadi and the Resh, which is T-S-R. It's Sor, T-S-O-R is the way it's usually transliterated in Hebrew. That word, T-S-O-R, gave us two words in Greek, tyrus, T-Y-R-U-S, and syrus, S-Y-R-O-S, and tyrus and syrus in Greek, which both came from T-S-O-R. And I didn't discover this. George Rawlinson did 200 years ago, perhaps, just about. He wrote this. I read it from him, and it makes perfect sense that T-S-O-R gives us both Taurus and Saurus in Greek, which give us Tyre in English and Syria. So they both came from the same word. So that T-S can be, when it comes into another language like Greek, it's sometimes a Z, but usually it's either a T or an S, and that's important to what I'm about to say, because tsi t-s-e-e-t-s-a, means issue, produce, children. And then there's 7704, which is only s-a-d-e-h, or s-a-d-a-y in some spellings, ending with a yad instead of with a with a hay with the letter H. So that's sadah or day and that means to spread out or a field. From these words I believe we have the English word seed. Sietsa being issue, produce, children, or sada or saday. Seed is something that you spread out through a field. So I believe the English word seed is cognate. With either or both of these Hebrew terms,
1: that um, Tietza word spelt really weird. It's uh, in in Hebrew. It's the T S Aleph T S Aleph. <laughs> it's a really strange one, and uh, we we don't even know necessarily how the Aleph was pronounced, right? But he right. thinks it was like an E E sound. So T T S E T S E. I agree,
0: and th- and it's not the Hebrew word for seed. But I believe they're related because the Hebrew word for seed is zera. So that TS sometimes becomes a Z in, in Greek or especially in English, where Sidon is sometimes spelled as, as zidon, Z-I-D-O-N, even in the King James Version of the Bible. It's spelled either way. The word seed is zera and that's actually the Zion letter in Hebrew, which is the letter Z. It's it's the equivalent of the Greek Zeta. And it's in the same place in the alphabet is the Greek letter Zeta. For all practical purposes. And I think they're one letter off because the Greeks dropped a letter. Well, well Zera beginning with a Z, instead of with that T-S that sometimes is spelled or pronounced like a Z. Zera means seed in Hebrew. But this Tzietza is issue, produce, children, and we refer to our children or the issue or produce of plants as seed. It could be fruit, but it can also be seed, because the fruit contains the seeds for next year's planting. And actually, wheat and and crops such as similar crops, the grain crops are actually, you're crushing the seed to get the wheat, right? You're milling the seed. So, you're eating the seed because you're crushing it. So, the seed is the fruit. Okay. 6641. Susu- I'm screwing this one up. Sabua. T S A B U W A Sabua and sixty six forty eight. Seba Sabua is something dyed and Seba T S E B A is a dye. It's dye, right? Like whatever kind of dye you have. Purple was common in Phoenicia. Okay. I believe and this could be a loan word that it's the source of the English word zebra. Sabua is something dyed, and a zebra is something with diverse stripes. Looks like it was dyed. I think that that's the source of the English word zebra. But that could be a loan word. I chose to include it here anyway. Even though I eliminated a lot of loan words from this list before we started these presentations. For some reason, I didn't eliminate that one. 6654. And this, to me, is plainly evident even if some people might scratch their heads sad t s a d sad is side and I believe that certainly is the source of our english word side and it means side that's all it means sixty seven o three sac t s a c h and sixty seven o five sac which is the verbal form. So, tsach, T-S-A-C-H, means dazzling, sunny, bright, or figuratively evident, because it's out in the light, right? Tsaka means to glare, i.e., to be dazzling or white. And I believe that's the source of the Latin terms, saker. Which is sacred or holy, sacrare, which is to concentrate or hollow, and the English term sacred. Something that's dazzling in white is seen as being holy. Go look at ancient images of the Holy Spirit it is always a bright white ghost-like being that the halos around the heads of saints that were painted around the heads of saints represent light emitting from the head of a saint it's these concepts of being bright and white have always been associated with the concepts of being haloed or sacred or holy
1: and Bill sorry I was just going to say the previous one said that's probably the origin of the letter the TS letter right, because it kind of looked like a picture of um, somebody laying on the side and for some reason they picked that as one of the letters for TS for for whatever reason
0: that's the most plausible explanation for the pictogram for the letter itself right yes I agree
1: it might mean to rest as well but I'm not certain about that
0: that sounds plausible also sixty seven oh four tsica T S I C H E H a or sik e means parched or dried up and you're not going to tell me that this is not the origin of the Latin term sicus which means dry or sicare which is too dry and we have the French term from sicus We have the French term sec, which is dry. The Italian term secco. I I only know those terms because of wine, right? (laughs) When you buy wine, French wine or Italian wine, you see those terms. And the English term sec, which is dry. Sac, which can mean dry wine. Desiccate or which which are to dry something, to suck all the water out of it, suck all the moisture out of it. All of these are related to this Hebrew term, tzika, through these Latin words, secus and sicare, which are to dry and dry. And that's exactly what the Hebrew word tzika means, parched or dried up. And I'm never going to be convinced that these words aren't directly related to one another. 67.16. C. T S I Y C. That's the only way I would pronounce that. Is a ship in Hebrew, and I believe that's the source of the English word see, "sea." The same exact pronunciation, except it morphed into referring to the body of water that a ship sails on, rather than to the ship itself. Sixty-seven. 25 t s i y u w n now in hebrew that would be sadi the i would not be represented in hebrew yod for the y and then the u would not be represented in hebrew so it's sadi yod vav for the w and and finally the letter nun or n so it's only four letters in Hebrew. A monumental or guiding pillar, a sign. And I sincerely believe that Siyun is the source of the English word sign, that those terms are cognate, that Siyun, that as our people migrated away and settled in England, Siyun eventually became the more simple word sign. 6861 is cyclon. T-S-I-Q-L-O-N. And Strong's defines it as being from an unused root meaning to wind. So I don't know what the form of the root was because Strong never included them in his definitions. He only said from an unused root, but he never told us what its form was, how it was spelled. He never repeated what the root word was, which is unfortunate. So, it can mean a sack as tied at the mouth, because they would wind the cord around it and tie it off. Cyclone means to wind, from a root meaning to wind. Well, we have this Greek term kuklos, that even though it begins with a K instead of a T-S, the end part is the same, and it's the same in Latin with kiklus, which is a circle, and eventually gives us the English word cycle, cyclo, and cyclone. And because we pronounce the initial C as an S, cyclone is absolutely identical. It's a winding storm, right? It It's absolutely identical to that in, in its sound to that Hebrew term cyclone, which is T-S-I. It it's, would be pronounced almost like a Z or an S at the beginning. So that's probably just a coincidence, but my focus is on the ending portion of this term that this cyclone is related to these Greek and Latin terms kyclos and kyclos in in Latin I would pronounce that c-y-c-l-u-s so I believe there's a a relationship there 6887 sarar t-s-a-r-a-r sarar is To compress, to bind up, to bind together, to shut up, to press upon, to besiege. But we see that it has an array of meanings of the same general sense. But to bind up or to bind together, in that sense, we have a Greek word that's almost perfectly identical. syra, S-I-E-R-A. This is sarar. In Hebrew, Syrah is a rope or a cord. And the verb "sirao," which is to bind or draw with a rope, has to be a cognate of this sarar, which is to bind up or bind together. And although it's a little further away, the Latin term strictus, which means tight, and stringere, which is to tie tight. I also believe that the English words truss, truss, straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, and seried are related to this word. But the Greek is no doubt related, those Greek terms. They're practically identical in sound and meaning. 6963, call. Or cowl, it's either q-o-w-l or q-o-l in English. And 6032 cal, q-a-l in English. The first, call, is from an unused root meaning to call aloud. And the second, cal, 7032, is voice or sound. So, We have the Greek term kaleo, which is call. And we have this Hebrew word call, which means to call. Wow. Kaleo, call. kalatus, which is a loud noise or voice. Kleos, where the A was elided. The, The A was dropped from between the K and the L, right? Kleos is a report. In Old Norse, we have kala, which means to call. The English term call. They're all identically the same as this Hebrew word, which is call, and had the same meaning, the same exact meaning, kaliel, call. <laughs> the same exact meaning as sixty nine sixty three call, and the same exact sound. Even though it's a K or a C in English or a K in Greek instead of a Q, it's the same meaning, the same sound. The Hebrew Q or kaph, which we would spell K-O-P-H in English usually, right? Is in the same place in the Greek version of the Phoenician alphabet for the kappa. So the Q, the Greeks have an equivalent, the Hebrews had a, a kaph, and I, I believe the K letter is called a kaph. am I correct? K-A-P-H?
1: Yeah, or it, they say it's with an O, a koph. Yes.
0: They, they have a... Um, they have both letters, a koph and a calf. The The Greeks had a kappa, but the kappa letter was also found in Greek and it was dropped. It was ultimately dropped because it... I don't know how the ancient Hebrews may have distinguished the two sounds. And in english we always use that u vowel after a q so we pronounce it qua queen um, I, I don't that there's several different words that employ that that u always follows the q it's very rare that we see the q without a u in english i don't think quarter i, I don't think we have a word that begins in q a native English word that doesn't have a U after it. I'm not sure, but I don't think so. It's been a long time since grade school, right? But there there's Katar, which is a spelling of some African country, I think, Q A T A R, but that's not a native English word. I don't know how the ancient Hebrews could have distinguished the the um letters that we call q and k but the greeks dropped it they dropped the q and only used the k
1: they're basically yeah, if, they, if they invented the alphabet then there must have been a difference right because there would be no reason we're just gonna have two letters for the curse sound but but i think like um arab it started with the q and it might have been like harab or, or something like that but but i don't know you'd have to go back in time and say okay can you say a q for me and then can you say a K? and then oh okay that's the difference but but there was um some latin writer who said um around Augustus's time that they have two redundant letters and that was the q and um i think it might have been the, the c Or C or the K just said that we don't need the letters. They're just the same as other letters. So by his time, they were the same in the Roman times. But maybe in Moses' time, there was a difference, right? Yeah,
0: that's basically what I'm trying to say. The ancient Hebrews, I I would bet they distinguished the sounds in one way or another. But eventually, they came to be pronounced the same. In, In... Pre-classical Greek, and and this is known from inscriptions, right? It's not known from literature, because the letters were dropped in, in, by the time of the classical period. Apparently, the letters were dropped. But in pre-classical Greek inscriptions, there were three letters, or really four, but there were three letters that were dropped. But they were maintained in classical times because they represented numbers. So they were only used as numbers. And, and those three letters are the vav or, or vowel, Vau, V-A-U in Greek, right? Or digamma. It had the place of the vav if you compare the Greek and Hebrew alphabets, the order that they were written in. So the vav or digamma represented the number six. And later in pre-classical Greek, that was changed to a stigma. So in classical times, the stigma survived as a symbol for the number six. And then there was the kappa, which would be, it, it, the kappa was basically the Hebrew calf in the same place. The kappa was basically the Hebrew kaf or the Q letter and roughly in the same place. And the kappa represented the number ninety, right? Because the Greek alphabet represented um, one through nine and ten through ninety, and and then the last eight letters represented one hundred through eight hundred. They had twenty-eight letters at at their peak. When these three letters I'm discussing were in use, they had twenty eight letters, right, in, in their alphabet. So the this vab or the digamma or the stigma represented a six, the copper represented a ninety, and then the final letter of the Greek alphabet, I'm sorry, they must have had twenty nine at its peak. The final letter was a sampi. And that represented the number nine hundred. But those three letters were all dropped. So omega became the final letter of the Greek alphabet.
1: If Was that a yes sound, the one you just said,
0: sorry? The sampi, I don't know how it should have sounded. I would guess that it was an sp sound, and I would guess that the stigma was an st sound, but I can't be certain of that.
1: Yeah. But um, I think the digamma is, is the difference. We all have trouble in Europeans between the U, the V, and the W, the uh the, and W, uh, because it can all kind of overlap, right? Like I think Poles, they say vodka instead of vodka. And in German, that there's something about the way they say Volkswagen instead of Wagen. You know what I'm saying is the V, G, it, it can all kind of um, get merged. Different cultures pronounce it differently. So maybe they just made it one letter and you pronounce it either way, right?
0: Well, yes, but it was also an overlap between the V sound and and the V and the W. The, the Vav in Hebrew is a Vav or a Wa. It, it could be a V or a W. But when we got to Europe, <clears throat> there, there was confusion over the B sound. Sometimes was interchanged with the V sound. And so was the F interchanged with the V. And the equivalent to the vowel or vav in ancient Greek, which became the digamma, the digamma was represented by the letter F. And I believe that that was evolved from that V sound of the vav. That's my opinion. We still have a ways to go here and, and it's getting kind of late. I don't know if you want to let this go into a fourth presentation because the, mm, I think we should because there's a lot left. I hate to say it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think we should. I don't mind
1: it completely up to you. It doesn't make no difference to
0: me. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at how far we got into this list and we haven't yet. We've covered barely half of the words on page four of the list. So we're only about one third of the way through where I had hoped to get today. We finished the SATI words and, and we've just gotten into the first cough word or, or call, which is call 6963. We have a long ways to go. We have a lot of words left. We should probably continue this next week.
1: Yeah, that's fine. No problem.
0: Otherwise, this is going to be a a four-and-a-half-hour program. Four-hour program, I swear.
1: (laughs) That'll be longer than the call-in program. I
0: know. Okay. Truthreads, thank you for being here.
1: No worries. Thanks, Ami. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thank you.
0: Praise Yahweh, and good night.